Uh, this morning, we're starting a new stir, uh, study, not a sturdy, but a new study. Uh, so please take out your Bibles and turn them over to your Old Testaments to the book of Ruth. You will find Ruth placed just after the book of Judges, which is just after the book of Joshua. So early on in your Old Testament, and God willing, over the next several weeks, we're going to be working our way through Ruth, this very beautiful short book in the Old Testament, but it's so pivotal in kind of uh, bridging the gap between the time of the judges, or, or at the very least, if not bridging the gap between the time of the judges and the kings, although literarily it kind of does do that, but at the very least, giving us some insights to life during the period of the judges. Now, I know we get plenty of that in the book of Judges itself, but Ruth is a beautiful little book that kind of gives us a sidetrack, a kind of, this is what was going on in life for a lot of, let's just call them regular people who were not necessarily the judges or the enemies during this period of time. And I'm going to have a lot to say here in just a few moments about the context, because Ruth is set in that context. But just on the outset, we're looking at what we would call, you know, I know that if you look in in history, the medieval period or, or pre-medieval period is sometimes called the Dark Ages uh, because, A, it was a dark time to live, but, B, we don't know much about it. Uh, there's not a lot of solid history. There is some, but not tons. Uh, well, you, you, Ruth is the Dark Ages for a very different reason. It's not dark because we don't have information on it. It's dark because of the moral climate in which Ruth takes place and is written. And so when we're looking at this moral climate, we've always got to keep that in the backdrop, that whatever is transpiring and happening in Ruth is against the backdrop of a, of a very hard and sobering moral situation. And you're going to hear me reference this again, where each was doing what was right in his own eyes. And so that, that is the foundation upon which Ruth is built. And when we accept that and see that, and when we understand that that's where we're coming from, we begin to value this book even more. And, and, and characters like Ruth and, and Boaz and even Naomi begin to take on a whole new value once we see them against the backdrop of the culture in which they're in. And so without too much further delay, I want to turn our attention now to the book itself. So this morning we're going to be reading Ruth or going through Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. So, beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to so sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his sons were Milan and Helion. They were Ephrathrites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Milan and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So is the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Pray with me real briefly. Father, thank You 
for this word, for this time, and for this opportunity. Use it to deepen our roots. Use it to draw us closer to you. Use it to give us hope. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. A book I have mentioned before and a character from that book, is, it's not a fiction book, it is, it is a true story, and the name of the book by Laura Hillenbrand is called Unbroken. Uh, if, you've, if you've not read it, you should, and so just add that to the list of books I keep recommending. Uh, probably, if I had to rank books that I've read in my lifetime, this would definitely be in my top five, just in terms of the sheer story and the, the beauty and magnitude of what it communicates. So I'm about to ruin it for you if you've not read it, so I'm just going to go ahead and warn you of that. So, spoiler alert. Louis Zamperini, the primary character, World War II vet, goes to war. Uh, he grows up in California, kind of troubled. He becomes an Olympic runner and sets records. He ends up going into World War II and becoming, ar becoming an Army aviator in World War II. He is in the Pacific Theater. He is in a plane in the Pacific Theater. It was a plane that was not airworthy. It was sent up anyway. He and the crew are over the Pacific. They go down in said Pacific and are stranded. They are stranded there for about 47 days, if I remember correctly, which if you're stranded at sea 47 days, that is no picnic. I mean, a day is no picnic. Try 47. Uh, several crew members die. And within that time, Louis Zamperini kind of makes this prayer of desperation to the Lord. If you get me out of this, I will serve you the rest of my days. Even in his delirium of lack of water and lack of food, he has hallucinations of seeing a heavenly host in the distance. And he's convinced that he had kind of a sight of God out there in the wilderness of the Pacific Ocean. And finally, their little raft bumps ashore on a Japanese-controlled island. And so one could say that he was rescued, but he was rescued by enemies in enemy territory where he was sent to an internment camp where I will spare you the details, read the book for yourself, where he was mercilessly tortured and beaten. The war finishes, he comes home. I promise you I'm going somewhere with this. As a part of a way to raise money for war bonds and stuff, he was asked to give his testimony of his experience to get people excited about how they might support the U.S. government. Well, beloved, what he was having to do is every time he told those stories was relive again and again and again and again the trauma of the things that he endured at the hands of his captors. And so when a man has nothing left to turn to, he began to drink to soothe his, his hurts and his woes, and he became a horrible, a horrific alcoholic because he had nothing to fall back on. I want you to hear here desperation. That's the one word I want you to hear me saying, even though I'm not using it. Desperation. He's desperate. His marriage was on the rocks. He's desperate. His life was falling apart. He's lost in alcoholism. He's desperate. His wife goes to a Billy Graham crusade and tries to get him to go. He don't want to go. He don't want to go. He doesn't want that. He just doesn't want to feel the pain. He knows that. But in his moment of desperation, let's call it in his hard time, the war was a hard time, life after the war. We could argue maybe even harder psychologically. 
in the depths of his hard time, he goes to a Billy Graham crusade, and what happens? The Spirit says, boom, and captures him and takes this man from a state of devastation to a state of hope. Why? Because in his moment of hurt and desperation, he finally went to the one place beyond a bottle, beyond a chemical, beyond a drug, to find hope in hard times, and that is Jesus Christ. It is a powerful, powerful, powerful story of redemption, not just being redeemed from an internment camp, but being redeemed from an infinitely worse prison of sin, death, flesh, and addiction. That is the power of God. Why did Louis Zamperini go through all that? I don't know all the, I don't know all the whys, but I do know the outcome, that in his moment of desperation, that is where the Lord met him. So when we come to the book of Ruth, it is filled with themes that range from righteousness to redemption to grace and to hope in bitter times. Bitter times. Hard providences. We come to Ruth, and we've just, you've just read it. You have read, you've listened to, and heard me give you the three crises of this book, famine, death, and death. That is the crisis of the book of Ruth, famine, death, and death. Once we go, when we realize that the movement of Ruth is famine to fullness, and I did not make that up. I got it from a book title. But famine to fullness, we begin to see the flow of this beautiful story. But this book is about struggle. It's about the struggle and the power of hope in struggle. It reminds us that trial and hardship are not pointless and they're not separate from God. If you, go, if you ever do read Unbroken, listen to how Zamparini talks about how the Lord used all his brokenness to get him to the point. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I've read other articles and interviews with him where he talks about it even more. But Ruth, it teaches that though we walk in dark valleys, God can and does and will guide His people to greener pastures, not easier pastures, not pastures where there is no devastation, where there is no bitterness or hardship, but pastures, pastures rather, where there is substance and sustenance and hope. This is a book about trust. This is. This, this book asks us the same question that Daniel did. Can we trust that God is moving and working in our most desperate times? When we turn our attention to Ruth 1, we are given the context of the story and the main crisis that drives the narrative. All that is there. We'll see that in just a minute. We meet characters. Characters. I'm going to use biblical language here. Characters who were people of sorrow afflicted, acquainted with grief. Now, where have we heard that before? The suffering servant. It's applied to Christ. Well, let me tell you, when you read biblical history, you can see that that is uniquely applied to Christ, but not express, or that's expressly applied to Christ, but not uniquely. And what I mean by that is the people of God are necessarily at times going to be people of sorrow, afflicted, acquainted with grief, but that's the beauty of lamentation and joy. Lament moves us to joy, and it does so in Ruth. They had real pain. They had real hurt, but they find a hope unshakable. And so the story gives us a glimpse into that hope 
that would come. The very last chapter begins to open the door to pull back the curtains on that little genealogy that ends Ruth. It begins to pull back the curtains on the Messiah who would ultimately come from the line of David, and we will get there eventually, God willing. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see this morning, and it's this, that devastation is the context for hope to conquer. That devastation is, is the context for hope to conquer. So what we're looking at here, we're looking at living in a devastated culture. So we're looking at what it means to live in a devastated uh, culture. So when we look at this, you know, th- there is no worth, value, or beauty that we're going to find in culture that, that we draw from ourselves. Culture Culture can never be the source of our hope. Only Christ alone can do that. So, so Ruth wasn't going to find help, and Naomi wasn't going to find help, and, and the other characters weren't going to find help in the culture. Moab couldn't give them ultimately what they needed. They needed something far richer than that and something far bigger, and that comes through for the Christian. It comes through Christ. For them, it was, it was Yahweh looking forward to Christ. And so out of the gate, right out of the gate, it sets the context for us, the writer of Ruth does. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. So right out of the gate, the days that the judges ruled. Now, I'm not going to review all of Judges. I'm gonna, there are four references that take place in Judges. Judges 17, 18, 19, and 21, the very la- last part of the book itself, that say, in those days there was no king, and each man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, when you let that summation stand, there is no king, so there's no physical king, there's no ultimate acknowledgement of Yahweh, and each one did what was right in his own eyes. You've got a moral, or his own eyes, you've got a moral relativism. What is that the recipe for? Disaster, (laughs) Uh, complete chaos, something awful. When people just decide, I'm going to do what's right for me, you do what's right for you, and those things are going to collide. And when they do, and when they do, it creates the context of utter chaos and despair. And so that's that's the context that we're given. That's the context. There's no king. There's no acknowledgement of God. There's anarchy. There's a a full-on rejection of God and His Lordship. I mean, my goodness, just read Judges if you haven't read it lately. It's intense. It's graphic. And the, the, the whole book, it's begging the question, what is our hope in life and death? It's a great book to read for the culture that we're in. So when each person in this context is doing what's right in their own eyes, well, we've got to start realizing that there's, there's no regard really for human life. Now, these are a people, the Jews, the Hebrews, who understood from creation that were made in the image of God. So, they're, they're living as if there is no regard for that in other people. There is no love of, of fellow man. So often it's driven by how can I get rich? How can I get over? How can I not get behind? How can I dupe? How can I cheat? How can I get ahead? When, we, when you look at Judges, you look at that period, it is, it is characterized by a supreme lack of fidelity in any way, shape, or form. Now, you have guys who come in, the Judges themselves, who are imperfect, who often have their own sin struggles that the Lord uses to deliver them from tyranny. But here's the problem with Judges. 
They get delivered from physical tyranny, but hearts don't change. This is why I think Ruth is looking forward to Christ to change the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue in Ruth is a, a, a needed heart change, and Ruth is pointing us towards that Davidic Messiah. But when you look at, when we think about autonomy, each doing what's right in their own eyes, that's exactly what the serpent offered Eve in the garden. He offered her autonomy, and where did it lead? It led Adam and Eve to utter destruction and sinking the world into the curse. Autonomy, the price of autonomy, what is it? When we look at that, I'm not obligated to anybody or any moral objective. I'm obligated to me. I am all that matters. And no one's going to say that out loud. Well, I shouldn't say no one. Very few people will say that out loud. There are some bold souls who actually say that. And hey, at least you know where you stand with them. But that type of autonomy is there's going to be a complete moral breakdown. There is no morality. There is no fidelity. Beloved of God, when we reject God and His Lordship, what happens is we lose the goodness, the beauty, and the essence of true love. When you look at the law, yeah, the law can get a bad rap from time to time because it sets a standard that no human being can keep apart from Christ. But, but Jesus summed the law up with the word love. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And so God would call us into a relationship of love with one another and with Himself. Let's reverse that order. With Himself and with one another. A love with God that bleeds out into other people. And judges, you're missing, you're missing that by and large. Not completely, but by and large. And so when it's setting the context for us in the days when the judges ruled, I've given you a very, very brief overview of what we're talking about morally. There was a famine in the land. That's your first of three crises that are mentioned in these first five verses. There's a famine in the land. So that's crisis number one. Now, you're talking about a famine. To an agrarian society, a famine means no rain, no crop. No rain and no crop means no money, no income. No income is devastation because there is no Publix, there is no Walmart, there is no local supermarket you can go to where the things you need have been imported. No, 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 no. You depend on what the land produces, and if the land is not producing, you are in trouble. Starvation, death, disease, it is a serious, serious issue. So when we look at this issue, it's easy to gloss over and think, oh, yeah, there's a famine in the land. We've read about that before in Scripture. But I want you to think about your life being completely upended. Everything that you have is lost. It doesn't matter how nice your tents or your robes are. If you can't eat, those mean nothing. Of course, the question we have to ask is, is this famine a divine curse from the Lord, or is it just kind of, there just happens to be a famine? People are divided on how they understand the famine. But when you look at the famine and you go back and you read Deuteronomy, where God tells the people, if you stray from me, these are the things that are going to happen, and one of those things is famine in the land. 
And so you're looking at a culture who now stands, what I believe to be under the judgment of the Lord. There's famine in the land. They're feeling the weight of their own immorality. And here they are. The land has begun to reflect the people's hearts. The land is dry and barren and dead. You're looking at, you're getting insight into the hearts of the people during the time of the judges. Dry, barren, dead. And so what happens? What is the response of this one family to this crisis to leave? So the famine is big enough to hit all Israel, but small enough to not reach over into Moab. And so this family leaves. Now, why is it important for us, or to me, as I understand it, it's important for us to see this as God's intervention on the land. Why? Because God told his people, if you stray from me, I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to pursue you. And if it takes famine and hardship and devastation to draw you back to me, that's what I'll do. And he does it. So the faithfulness of God is that he pursues his people even with devastation. But there is an irony here, right? Well, we're told where this man and his family are from, they're from Bethlehem. Or in Hebrew, Beit Lechem, the house of bread. Isn't it ironic that they leave the house of bread in search of bread? Isn't it ironic that they leave the unpromising promised land in search of promise? What are they doing? They're stepping outside the boundaries of where God has called his people to be to look for something that can't be found. There seems to be some sort of temporary hope and help in Moab, but we understand from the text itself it doesn't last very long. So you've got people who are looking for promise. They're looking for bread outside the boundaries of where God has called them to be. We can argue about whether or not they were in sin. That's not the point of this text, at least as far as I can tell. But what we do need to understand is where they go is important. It should not be lost on us that we're told in the text they go to Moab. During the time of the judges, if you remember, Moab, okay, let's, let's just do our, a little bit of biblical history here. Moab was the son of the union between Lot and one of his daughters. So one of, one of the children that Lot's daughters had, they named Moab, who ended up becoming the country of Moab. Moab was no friend to Israel during the Exodus. When Exodus left Egypt, Moab was no friend to them. Moab continued to be no friend to Israel. If you look in the period of the judges, Moab uh, sets itself up as a historical enemy. Just remember, Balak, King Balak, who hired Balaam to come and, and lure Israel away. The women of Moab came into the congregation of Israel to draw the men away. Ehud, the left-handed judge, who killed the oppressor, King Eglon. Where was King Eglon king? Moab. So you're talking about a family who goes into the literal enemy of the people of Israel to find refuge and hope. What should that tell us? That hope and help are not found in the enemy. They don't go and find the things they're looking for. In fact, we could argue that they find more devastation. Was it Wise of Elimelech to go was just a faithful move on his part. The text is silent. But you, when we look at where they went, we have to ask ourselves, was that the best decision? 
he did what he thought was right. But here's the thing. When you look in Scripture and you see people drifting or or making decisions in a moment to try to fix a temporal problem, Abraham leaves the land of promise and goes to Egypt, and it turns out to be disastrous. Elimelech leaves the land of promise, and it turns out to be disastrous. There's one more component of this story as we're setting the context I think is important. What did I tell you? During the time of the judges, there was no king in Israel, and each one did what was right in his own eyes. Well, Elimelech, two Hebrew words, my God is king. That's what Elimelech names, his name means, my God is king. So there's a piece of irony there. He lives in a time and in a period where there is no king, and each does what is right in his own eyes. So let's just say there is no acknowledgement of Yahweh, and you have this man whose name is my God is king. Is he faithful? We don't know. Some say yes, some say no. I think it's just best to say we don't know if he was faithful or not. We know what his name means. And it is ironic given the period he was in. Naomi, what does her name mean? Pleasant, lovely. When we think about the life that Naomi lived, was it a very pleasant life? Well, not temporally speaking. In fact, she'll make a play on this later on in this chapter. So we're looking at a piece of irony here. And if we want to go ahead and draw this on out, Milan and Kilion's names mean respectively weak and frail. I mean, right? I want to draw this out one step further. Orpah and Ruth, Orpah's name means to turn away from or abandon. Ruth means friend. I normally don't make a big deal about names in Scripture because sometimes they have value and sometimes they're just names, just like You know, years from now, there is no significance to my name meaning broad meadow, and that's exactly what it means, broad meadow. Just so you know, I was named after one of my mother's favorite soap opera persons. (laughs) That's the wretchedness and the the heritage of my name. My brother was named after a great family friend. I was named after Young and the Restless. (laughs) There's a sermon in there somewhere. I just hadn't quite figured out where it is. So my name is meaningless, uh, Broad Meadow. These names actually mean something. They have value. They they function in the story. They're a story within the story. They're telling us a story within the story about the people who bear them. But when we look at this, so what is the summation of where we are presently? We're evil culture. It's evil times. It's hard. It's devastating. It's hopeless. And it's so easy to see and experience the the devastation that's prevalent there or in our own culture. And when we do, it's easy, right? It's easy to lose heart. It's easy to look at it and just kind of lose heart. But here's here's the sweet truth that has to balance these bitter experiences is that the sovereignty of God is real. Hey, it's it's real when we, we get, you know, that news we didn't really want. It's real. When that person breaks our hearts, it's real when we are devastated from physical or emotional pain and trauma, just like it's real when we hear the yes to that prayer and the, the beauty in that relationship or the deliverance from the trauma. The sovereignty of God is real in both, and it brings balance. Evil is present, 
right? Evil is present. What reigns in the body of Christ? Not evil, Christ. Evil will come at us, but Christ reigns. And and culture is going to bully, and culture is going to devastate, but we serve a living God who has said it is finished and, and triumphed over evil, sin, and death, and given us a real and lasting hope, a hope that we can never lose, a hope that can never be taken, a hope that remains whether we're in chains or free, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're fed or hungry. And you can add any other dichotomy you want, the hope that remains. This, this kind of progresses on. It picks up. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. The names of the two sons, Milan and Kilion. We looked at that. They love, the Hebrews love to try to give you these tongue twisters with the Ephrathrites. It's not the easiest thing to say. Let's try to say it fast. Ephrathrite. Ephrathrites from Bethlehem in Judah, just clarifying where they're from, giving us their, their tribal lineage. And then they went into the country of Moab. Then here we go. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Crisis number two. We've got the famine. Now we've got the death of Elimelech. And so you have this crisis number two. Naomi is widowed. And the text indicates later on that she is, she's to an age where there is no hope of remarriage. She's not going to be remarried. She's already kind of past that age. And so we're talking about a woman who is living in a culture that was very husband-dominant and dependent. So no husband to care for her. She's grieving a loss, for one. She's also recognizing, I've kind of lost my provision and protection because my husband is gone. Now she really is at the mercy of her two sons. Will they do what they're supposed to? Will they, will they take care of their, of their mother? That's the idea that is prevalent here. This notion of she's devastated. Who's going to care for Naomi? Well, we know the answer to that is the Lord will do it, but in this moment, she doesn't know, right? Can we, can we just appreciate that she's in a valley and she doesn't know what will happen? And so her devastation is quite real. So Elimelech dies. We, we've got crisis number two. Chapter, or verse four. Her sons took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived about 10 years and both Milan and Kilion died. And so right there, you get the death of the boys. You get crisis number three. Now these three crises, these three crises are foundational of the book of Ruth. They, they set the context for the rest of the story. Famine, death, and death. You could really argue that it's death, death, and death. And so that the crisis of the story is death and how will life prevail within death? That's the idea. That's the question. How will life prevail? These boys marry Moabite women. Is that wise or unwise? Doesn't say. But what it tells us is that they made the choice to stay in Moab to marry and put their roots down there. And so when you think about whether or not this is wise or not, it's just simply how you read the text and what you think. Some people say yes, some people say no. It really, it doesn't matter. But with the death of the boys here, they married Moabite wives, that's here and there. They took their, or the death of the boys here in verse 5, what it really does get at is 
the loss of family and the loss of providers. Now Naomi is completely devastated. When you think about Naomi, she's cut off from her land. She's in Moab. She's cut off from her family. They are, in, they are dead. They're in Sheol. She's cut off from life as she understood it. She's devastated. Certainly, it's, easier, it's easy for us to say, yeah, but in a couple of chapters, we're going to see that the Lord rebuilds Naomi. She doesn't know that yet. And here's what I would say. I don't say this lightly. It is often that God takes away and breaks down so that He can rebuild something more rich and beautiful. And beloved, that is not me being cliche. That's not me sneezing or scoffing at any pain that you may be going through right this instant. But it is the hope of the gospel, the hope of that message that Christ takes away our sin and death and gives us life and hope, that message. It is the hope of the gospel that says the, the things that are, are, are dead and ungodly in us have to be cut away so that he can rebuild. And it's a beautiful thing we have here. We are completely and utterly devastated right now with Naomi. She's lost everything. We don't even know yet that she's gained Ruth. And we don't even, when she does gain Ruth, we don't even know how rich and beautiful that's going to be. Not yet. All we know is that we have a broken woman who's lost her husband, who's lost her children, and she's stuck in Moab with no provision, no, no protection, and a sense of pervasive hopelessness. What will become of me? And that is exactly where the Lord works. So not to lessen this devastation or the devastation that we experience, but a devastated life really is an opportunity to trust in the Lord and find hope in Him. It really is. Pain is real, and, and, and I know it hurts, but it doesn't have to rob us of the joy and hope that we have in the Lord. You've heard me mention William Cooper before. You might recognize his name. It looks like Cowper, but it's pronounced Cooper. He, he wrote hymns like, There is a fountain filled with blood. God moves in a mysterious way. Talk about a man who had a devastated life. I was mentioning this to my chapel life group just on Wednesday. A man who was afflicted, acquainted with grief, a man of sorrow himself, who tried to commit suicide several times, lost his mother at a very young age, was the victim of bullying, spoke with a lisp, which gave him no help in life. He was a, he was a man who grew up knowing pain, knowing devastation. He's also the man who wrote the line from a hymn, Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. This is not a man who wrote from cliché. This is a man who wrote from pain. And it was reminding us, me, you, the people of God, that behind a frowning providence, there's a smiling face. There's a frowning providence before us in Ruth. And behind it is a smiling face of God. So the hurts we face, they're real. They're substantive. They really are. And I can't even imagine what some of you might be going through right now. But how much more is, how much more substantive, how much more substance is there in the love, hope, and grace of Christ? We are. You've heard me use this before. We, we get caught between the hammer and the anvil, and we cry out, How long? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And those are okay. Those are good prayers if we're coming back around to the joy 
of the Lord. There is joy in Ruth. There is hope in Ruth. Ruth is going to be called the Eshethchayel. I told you, the Proverbs 31 woman. She embodies it. She'll be it. Right now, Naomi doesn't know that. All she knows is that she's broken and hurting and lost, and the Lord is drawing her back in. Devastation can rob us of hope if we focus on that moment. If we focus on the moment, it will rob us of hope. But Christ is calling us to focus on Him and remain hopeful. And so this morning, Ruth says, hang on to hope. Hang on to hope even in devastating times because Yahweh is reigning. He is real, and He is guiding His people. Please pray with me. Father, thank You for this reminder of hope. Oh, Lord, it is not lost on us that some of us, even this week, have gotten devastating news. In this room, God, we're dealing with death. We're dealing with disease. We're dealing with broken relationships. We're dealing with what feels like daunting life changes that we might not overcome. We're dealing with anxiety and depression and fear and anger and despair God, we're dealing with a sense of drowning in so many different circumstances, and yet the clarion call of your word this morning is to live by faith, not by sight, and to remain hopeful. God, every soul in this room, I earnestly pray with all the earnestness I can muster, make us supremely hopeful people. Make us not aloof, God, not indifferent, but hopeful. Oh, Father, give us the hope of Christ in every circumstance that when we stand, we stand staring a frowning providence knowing that behind it there is a divine smile of, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. May we remember that. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.